chapter 1, we're going to be looking at verses 29 through 34. John chapter 1, verses 29 through 34. Made our way through John so far. We've uh, looked at the the introduction in verses one through eighteen. Last week we looked at um, the uh, the witness of John the Baptist whenever he was questioned by the um, the questioners that the religious authorities had sent to try to investigate him, and he told them that he was not um, the Messiah, but he came to uh, prepare the way for him. And and then whenever we pick up here in verse 29, this is the next day, the next day after he was questioned. So verse 29, the next day John seeth Jesus coming unto him and saith, Behold, the Lamb of God, which taketh away the sin of the world. This is he of whom I said, After me cometh a man which is preferred before me, for he was before me. And I knew him not, but that he should be made manifest to Israel. Therefore I am come baptizing with water. And John bare record, saying, I saw the Spirit descending from heaven like a dove, and it abode upon him. And I knew him not. But he that sent me to baptize with water, the same said unto me, Upon whom thou shalt see the Spirit descending and remaining on him, the same is he which baptizes with the Holy Ghost. And I saw and bear record that this is the Son of God. And so whenever we uh, come to this passage, we really do get a... uh, Another testimony from John. You can see how the passage, um, how the passage really begins and ends. But uh, the way that he ends, he says he saw and he bears record. That is, he bore witness to the fact that this was Jesus Christ was or is the Son of God. The title of the message this morning is "Behold the Lamb of God." Behold the Lamb of God. And again, what more appropriate message could we have as we come together to observe the Lord's Supper? Um, We're here to proclaim that we have beheld the Lamb, that we um, have seen Him, that just as John, really as the pattern goes, knew him not, but he was made manifest, and so he beheld the Lamb of God which taketh away the sin of the world. Uh, As far as just getting our minds wrapped around this passage, you'll you'll notice very quickly as you read it that this passage is is going through some explanation, and while we're not going to really get bogged down in a lot of the explanation. We're going to try to keep the main focus on the main part of the passage. Uh, We do want to put the passage in its context and teach what it is teaching. So you will notice um, that verses 29 through 34, they happen after Jesus was baptized. John says, I didn't know who he was. Uh, but this is how I, it was confirmed or manifested to me. It was revealed that the one whom the Spirit would descend on like the dove, and we'll get to that. But, but apparently, 
John did not know who the Messiah was, but only that he was sent to prepare the way for him and to baptize him at the inauguration of his ministry. So um, according to what's being communicated here, both in 31a and 33a, uh, John the Baptist confirms, I don't think he means here, I don't think it, when you look at the emphasis of the text, I don't think he means here, I didn't know who Jesus was, I'd never met my cousin before. I don't think that's what he's saying. Uh, what John's communicating here is, is that until this moment, I was not sure who the Messiah was. I knew that I came to prepare the way. I knew that I came to uh, preach um, repentance and I came to uh, proclaim that the kingdom of God was at hand. And brothers and sisters, just in case we forget, and we're, we're in a pretty good spot right now since we just finished Daniel, but just in case we forget, the inauguration of the Messiah's ministry is an enormously anticipated event in Old Testament prophecy. You remember in Daniel 9 verse 25, Remember whenever we were going through that timeline of those 77s and there's going to be seven sevens. I'm not going to take you through the whole confusing thing, but 49 years there would be a, uh, the, the new temple would be completed. And then 62 sevens after that, the Messiah would come and be anointed. Okay? You can go back and look at that. Daniel chapter 9, verse 25. The point that I'm making here is whether or not the Jews had the timeline down exactly, the Jews were looking, anticipating the fact that Messiah was coming and that there was going to be some kind of anointing that took place. We mentioned this back whenever we were in Daniel, but as far as the, uh, as far as the timeline goes... The only historical event that's given a date in the Gospels in Luke chapter 3 is the baptism of Jesus. It's that day that Jesus comes. If you, if you want to look there in Luke chapter 3, we were going to go anyway. Why is this important? Well, because according to John, not only did he not know him, that is, he did not know the Messiah. But according to verse 31, it says, but that he should be made manifest to Israel. So what John knew was that God was going to make the Messiah manifest. He was going to reveal who that was. How is it that he was going to reveal him? How would the people know? Well, John says this, um, Again, verse 33, I knew him not, but that but he that sent me to baptize with water, the same said unto me, upon whom thou shalt see the Spirit descending and remaining on him, the same is he which baptizeth with the Holy Ghost. And so apparently, the one who sent him, well, who sent John? Well, it was God the Father. He was commissioned by God. He was sent by God to bear witness of the light. And apparently God, the, God told John, made it clear to John in some way 
communicated that the one whom he baptized, that the Spirit descended upon and remained upon, he would be the Messiah. That's how this is made manifest. And so it's obviously made manifest to John, but because, because after that baptism in verse 29, he's proclaiming, behold, the Lamb of God. This is him. But back to Luke chapter 3. Luke chapter 3. Verse 1, now in the 15th year of the reign of Tiberius Caesar, Pontius Pilate being governor of Judea and Herod being tetrarch of Galilee. There's our date. There's the date that's given here. It's during this year that we find ourselves in verse 21. Now when all the people were baptized, it came to pass that Jesus also being baptized... And praying, the heaven was opened, and the Holy Ghost descended in a bodily shape like a dove upon him. And a voice came from heaven which said, Thou art my beloved Son, in thee I am well pleased. Now, think about this. Think about the fact that, that uh, of how it is that God is revealing um, his son, to Israel at this time. Jesus comes to be baptized. When John baptizes Jesus, the Spirit descends upon him like a dove. And then, the Lord had told John to be looking for the Spirit that, were, that was going to descend and remain. But just in case John was confused... Jesus comes out of the water and after the, the, the dove had descended or the spirit had descended, the voice of God says, Behold, my beloved son in whom I am well pleased. John says, I didn't know him, but he was made manifest to me. And then verse 34 ends with, And I saw and I bear record or bear witness that this is the Son of God. And so let's back up to verse 29. Again, this is where we're going to camp out for the majority of the text because this is where the majority of the substance is, at least for us this morning. John sees Jesus coming and he says, Behold the Lamb of God that takes away the sin of the world. We've mentioned this before, but the word behold there means to consider, means to fix your thoughts here, fix your gaze here. It doesn't mean just look, it doesn't mean take a quick glance, it means to fix yourself here. Now there could have been no doubt as to what it was that John was communicating here. For us in... in um, uh, you know, modern day Western ears and eyes, if we're unfamiliar with the Old Testament, we might not really connect all the dots as to what it is that John was proclaiming at this time. But to any Jew in that day, they knew just exactly what John was saying. Uh, it, it was one of those things where a uh, word picture was worth a million words. When John says, behold, the Lamb of God that takes away the sin of the world, that is a phrase that is packed full of rich Old Testament theological themes that are going to be developed. 
One of the things that we see right off, and John would go on to, to say this, one of the things that we see right off, and we could miss it if we're not careful, John is saying, behold, the Lamb of God that takes away the sin of the world. Now, immediately an Old Testament mind would go back to the tabernacle, would go back to the temple, would go back to those sacrifices that were made, the lambs that were slain, the animals that were brought to the altar. And we'll get into some of that in a minute. But the point that John's making is this is the lamb. This is the lamb that every other lamb foreshadowed. This is the lamb that God's people have been anticipating. This is the lamb that will make the sacrifice that Isaiah referred to in Isaiah 53. The fact that he was the lamb carries with it the themes of sin and guilt. The theme of an unblemished sacrifice that must be presented to the Lord. The themes of substitutionary atonement, that is, God's wrath must be poured out on someone, something. Blood must be shed if God's people would be made right with Him, if atonement would be made. Surely the people's minds would have gone back to passages like Genesis chapter 22, 6-8, when Abraham is taking Isaac up to sacrifice him and Isaac looks around and he says, we have the wood here and we have the knife, but where's the sacrifice? And you remember what Abraham said. He said, God will provide himself a lamb. John chapter 1 verse 29, behold the lamb that God has provided for himself. Brothers and sisters, whenever we think about what we're doing here Sunday after Sunday and what we're doing here as we observe uh, the Lord's Supper and we take communion with one another, it could very easily all be wrapped up in this little phrase, we are gathering together to behold the Lamb of God. We have beheld Him and we have committed our lives to beholding Him, to soaking in the riches that we've received in Him, to understanding and, and uh, comprehending all that we've been given through the Lamb of God that God has provided for Himself on our behalf. Perhaps maybe when a Jew heard this more than anything else, what came to mind was Exodus chapter 12. Exodus chapter 12 is where the Lord institutes the Passover lamb. And you'll remember this. The angel of death was going to come through. It was the, um, the final curse there. And, and he was going to come through. And, and, and the Lord through Moses told his people that what you need to do is you need to find a, uh, you need to take a lamb, a lamb that is unblemished. And you slay that lamb and you consume that lamb, but you take the blood of that lamb and you paint the doorpost with that blood. And when the angel sees that, he will pass over your house. 
Why do we? Why is this? Uh, and this is a theme that will come up again and again in the Old Testament. But this this idea of the Passover that is God's wrath was passing over the houses that were covered in the blood of the lamb. You'll remember the firstborn of the Egyptians were slain. As a matter of fact, the firstborn of anybody who didn't paint their doorpost with the blood of the lamb. Death came to their house that night. But for those who were under the blood of the lamb, they were spared. God's wrath, as it were, passed over them. And so, brothers and sisters, when John proclaims, behold, the lamb of God, the people would have understood this is our Passover. This is the one whose blood we must be covered in in order for the wrath of God to pass over us. Another rich Old Testament image would be the scapegoat in Leviticus chapter 16. Leviticus chapter 16. I will turn there. I'm just going to read a couple of verses, but And so in Leviticus chapter 16, Moses is, um, Moses is articulating the way that a particular sacrifice should be made and what needs to happen. They were to bring two goats um, uh, together and present them before the Lord, verse 7, at the door of the tabernacle of the congregation. And then verse 8 says, And Aaron shall cast lots upon the two goats, one lot for the Lord and the other lot for the scapegoat. And Aaron shall bring the goat upon which the Lord's lot fell and offer him for a sin offering. But the goat on which the lot fell to be the scapegoat shall be presented alive before the Lord to make an atonement with him and to let him go for a scapegoat into the wilderness. Well, brothers and sisters, this is really where we... Um, see at least up to this point in scripture the fullest picture of what a um, substitutionary atonement looks like that is um, the two goats would come and one would be designated to be the lord's sacrifice the other would be designated as the scapegoat that is he would escape the wrath or the death that the other one would endure and he would go free into the wilderness the whole sacrificial system was built upon this idea, this um, principle of a substitutionary atonement. You realize that not one single animal that ever fell under the knife stood guilty before God because of some sort of a sin violation that that animal had committed. But when God was instituting the, the, uh, uh, the tabernacle and the temple sacrifices here, the atoning sacrifices for sin, he was instilling in his people this concept of substitutionary atonement. Your sin will be laid on this animal. And when this animal is slain, atonement will be made. Okay? Atonement is, we're talking about a reconciliation that's occurring here. 
the fact that your relationship with the Lord based on your violations of the covenant have been restored. You've been brought back together. You've been made to be at one again with the Lord. When John says, behold, the Lamb of God, behold, the Lamb of God that takes away the sin of the world, no doubt the Jews would have thought of, their minds would have gone to the sacrificial practice, this system of the scapegoat. Now, we have to, uh, we have to take just a minute and make sure that for any of this to mean anything, we also have to understand that John's listeners had no doubt in their mind that the reason that these animals, the reason that this Passover, the reason that this offering was being brought before the Lord was because they knew something must be done for their sin. There are times where people can, can look at just how gruesome these sacrifices in the Old Testament were and become disturbed and, and think this is just so needless. It's just so senseless. It, 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 it is um, such a barbaric thing. And in all reality, if we were there, and if we were to see that, particularly if we were to see um, in Jesus' day, the Passover, and we were to see the amount of animal carcasses that would have lain outside and the river of blood that would have poured through, it would have been disgusting. It would have been disturbing. And God is painting a picture for his people there that this is how serious sin is. This is how gruesome sin is. This is how disgusting sin is. This is how serious sin is to a thrice holy God who cannot even look upon sin. And so, brothers and sisters, whenever we behold the Lamb, not only do we behold the sacrifice that would be made on our behalf, but when we behold the Lamb, we come face to face with the holiness of God. We come face to face with the fact that it is because of my sin. It is because of my sinfulness that any of this had to happen in the first place. As we, as we uh, meet together and as we observe the Lord's Supper together, there really there is a distinction, a clear distinction that's marked as we observe the Lord's Supper, we observe it as a church ordinance, which means that we believe that um, each believer ought to partake of the Lord's Supper in his or her um, local church, which they're a member of. That's not necessarily the distinction we're trying to make. The distinction that we make is that those who regularly come and are part of the congregation, there are some who have seen their sin there are some who have fled to Jesus Christ for refuge, who have placed themselves under the blood of Jesus Christ for hope and refuge, who have been drawn to Him through the power of the Holy Spirit and who have come to find their hope and their rest in Him. 
And so when we say, behold, the Lamb of God, that makes sense. We know what you're talking about. We know what Scripture's talking about. But brothers and sisters, there's also, and this is not just here, this is in the world at large, there are also millions of people who have no idea what to do with Jesus outside of maybe acknowledge that he must have been a good man. But the need for him to die doesn't make sense. The need for him to offer himself as a sacrifice to God, it doesn't make sense. And there's one reason for that. If you don't see your need for a Savior, it's because you don't see your sin the way God sees it. If you can behold the Lamb of God and be unaffected and think that he's a sweet person that you can do without, it's because you don't have a real understanding of your sin before a holy God. And so when John says, behold the Lamb of God, not only is he pointing us to uh, Jesus Christ and what Christ would accomplish for his people, he's also pointing us to the holiness of God and the wretchedness of man. Why is there a need for this lamb to begin with? Why is it that God would send his son? As we'll see in chapter 3. Well, Ecclesiastes chapter 7 verse 20 says this. There is not a just man upon the earth that doeth good and sinneth not. There's not a just man that does good and sins not. Romans chapter 3 would tell us that we've all sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. Whether we recognize that or not, that's a reality. We live in a world where every single human being has fallen short of the glory of God. And so it's as we said this morning, the question is, now what? Now what? Well, some would like to ignore that reality. Some would like just to not even acknowledge that reality. And to those, the Lamb of God is of no value. But some are pricked to the heart by a passage like Romans 3.23. And they realize that's talking about me. I've sinned against God. I've squandered what he's given me. I've spit in the face of his glory. And for those, John says, behold the Lamb. Behold the Lamb. Two very important concepts in Scripture that we have to understand if we understand the Lamb of God in context. Look in Hebrews chapter 9. Hebrews chapter If Ecclesiastes 7.20 is correct, and of course we affirm that it is, not a just man upon the earth that does good and sins not, Hebrews chapter 9 verse 22 would tell us this, and almost all things are by the law purged with blood, and without shedding of blood there is no remission. 
All things by the law are purged with blood. What's he talking about there? Well, he's talking about what it means to deal with sin. How is it that our sins would be purged? How is it that we would uh, come to have the remission of sin or to have our sins remitted? How is that? And he says, the only answer for sin, the only thing that could cleanse you from your sin is blood. Blood must be shed. Someone says, I don't understand that. Well, you don't have to understand it as far as making sense out of all of that. This is what God has revealed to us. And then he tells us something else in Hebrews chapter 10, verse 4. He says that it is not possible that the blood of bulls and goats should take away sin. And so in order for your sin to be cleansed, to be washed, it must be blood, must be shed. But Hebrews would be very clear here that it's not possible that the blood of these goats, that the blood of these lambs, that the blood of these rams, that any of the blood that, would, that was shed in those temple sacrifices could possibly atone for one single sin. What are we left with? Well, we're back there with John. He says, behold, behold, the Lamb of God that takes away the sin of the world. Now, we're, we're striking the same chord here again and again and we're striking that chord on purpose because what John is saying here and what we need to get in our minds here not just in a evangelistic um, in an evangelistic way but in an ongoing way is that brothers and sisters if you have come to the point to where you recognize that you are stained by sin before God then the only hope that you ever have that you will ever have is the Lamb of God. We look at those goats and those um, uh, lambs in the Old Testament and we say, well, I would never do that. That's not anything that we practice. That's true. It's true, but we try to clean ourselves up in all kinds of different ways, don't we? We decide we're going to do better. You know, I gotta, I'm going to do better. I'm going to read my Bible more. I'm going to come to church more. I'm going to quit cussing. I'm going to quit this and I'm going to quit that. And you know what John would say? Behold the Lamb of God. Behold the Lamb of God. He is our status before God. It is through His substitutionary atonement that we have any standing with the Lord, that the Lord has favored us, or as we said this morning in, the, uh, uh, in Psalm 85, that we've received anything, any kind of mercy at the hand of God. We come here this morning and we recognize it's not because of anything I've ever done or will ever do. If I have any, if I have received any favor from the hand of God, it's through the Lamb of God who shed His blood for me. Isaiah chapter 53. You knew we would go here today. Isaiah chapter 53. Now John's proclamation is Behold the Lamb of God which taketh away the sin of the world. Now the sin of the world here 
think as we make our way through John, you can make the argument that what John is saying here is that he is the Lamb of God that takes away the sin of both Jews and Gentiles. He's not talking about every single member of the world. We know that. We know that from from where the gospel ends up going and the way Jesus ends up praying in John 17. But the proclamation here that would have been just astonishing to the Jews was behold, the Lamb of God that takes away the sin not only of Jews but of Gentiles as well. Isaiah 53. Again, we're thinking about this idea of this reality, this principle in Scripture of the fact that Jesus and the atonement that He made on our behalf is where we find favor with the Father. Verse 10 says, It pleased the Lord to bruise Him, that is to crush Him. He hath put Him to grief. When thou shalt make his soul an offering for sin, he shall see his seed. He shall prolong his days, and the pleasure of the Lord shall prosper in his hand. He shall see the travail of his soul and shall be satisfied. By by his knowledge shall my righteous servant justify many, for he shall bear their iniquities. Again, here we find this is elementary as far as um, our understanding what it means for us to behold the Lamb, what it means for us to look to Christ, but it's also necessary. Brothers and sisters, what is it that pleases the Lord? How is it that the Lord could ever be pleased with us? Well, the answer is because He's pleased with His Son. Okay, the, only, the only confidence that you could ever have that God is pleased with you is this confidence that God was pleased with His Son, that He was pleased with His life, that he was pleased with his sacrifice that he offered unto God on our behalf. How is it that we could ever be assured that the Lord was satisfied with us? Well, the answer is the same. It's because he's satisfied with his son. If the father is satisfied with his son and I've been placed in the son, then the father is satisfied with me as well. And we know all this theologically, at least most of us do. We understand all of this theologically, but functionally we can get way out of sorts here. Functionally we can get to the point to where we begin to live out our life in a performance-based relationship as if um, um, beholding the Son of God is just secondary or is just a a one-moment thing that we've gotten past. Brothers and sisters, that's not true. We come here today to take the elements of the Lord's Supper to affirm that we have beheld the Son of God and we are beholding the Son of God. To affirm that we have communion with God through Jesus Christ and since we have communion with God through Christ, we have communion with one another through Christ. We come together not to um, uh, bring our works and to bring our, um, uh, our performance over the last Uh, you know, four months before God and say, look, Lord, we did it again. We come today saying that the only hope we have and the only hope we've ever had is that we're washed by the blood of the Lamb of God. Now, that's not to say that as we come here this morning, 
and we're called to behold the Lamb of God, that we simply see Jesus as a quick ticket out of hell. That we're satisfied that he has um, accomplished what he has accomplished, but that has very little um, effect on our affections, on our lives, on our commitments, on our priorities. Brothers and sisters, if the Holy Spirit has opened your eyes and allowed you to behold the Son of God, then you've also been given the understanding that the Lord is throughout your earthly life seeking to conform you to the image of His Son, Jesus Christ. That you're to grow in conformity to the character of Christ. Not in order for us to somehow add to the salvation that the Lord has given us, but for us to enter into the salvation that the Lord has given us. Part of what we're doing here whenever we're talking about um, taking communion and observing the Lord's Supper together is we're saying we are joint participants with God in what He is doing in us through the work of the Spirit in conforming us to Christ. Not only is this a celebration, but this is also a, a measure of accountability that we have for one another. It's not a measure of accountability that says if you've sinned or if you got angry this morning or if you were in a fuss this morning, then you don't need to take the elements of the Lord's Supper. It's a measure of accountability that says if you have decided and you have a pattern in your life that you are no longer interested in walking with the Lord's people, being stirred up by the Lord's people, being conformed to the image of Jesus Christ, and living as if you've beheld the Lamb of God that takes away the sin of the world, then there is no communion for you here because you aren't participating in what we're claiming to participate in. I hope that makes sense. This is a meal for sinners. This is an uh, observation as we take the bread and we take the wine. This is something we're doing to proclaim we are in desperate need. But we're not searching for the remedy. We found it. And we're not confused as to the path we're charting. We found it. We're on it. Perfectly? No. But what it means to be a member of a local church is that we're helping one another, we're encouraging one another along that path. And so we're celebrating not only the fact that we've been covered in the blood of the Lamb as we, along with John, say, behold the Lamb of God that takes away the sin of the world and my sin is in the middle of that. We're also saying not only have we beheld the Lamb, but we're following the Lamb. And we believe that in God's providence, he has placed us in this church. And he's given us the fellowship that we have in this church. That we might be able to bear witness of the same thing that John did. That is, I bear record. You're going to do that in a minute. When you drink the wine and you eat the bread, you're going to, this is what you're doing. I bear record that He is the Son of God. 
That's my testimony. My testimony is that in and of myself, I was lost, I was blind, I was in need, but I beheld the Lamb of God. And the Spirit opened my eyes to the realities of what He accomplished on my behalf. And He has placed me in His church and He has made me to walk alongside my brothers and sisters who I am in fellowship, joint participation with. And we celebrate that today. So John says, Behold, the Lamb of God that takes away the sin of the world. And so, brothers and sisters, this is the substance of our communion. What I mean by that is the substance of what we're doing here. We're going to bear witness to several things, and I'm just going to read them here. Number one, as we move into the communion service, we are bearing witness to the fact that Jesus Christ is the Lamb of God. And we are bearing witness to that fact corporately as a church. Why? Because it pleases the Lord to do that. Secondly, we're bearing witness to the fact that we have found forgiveness and reconciliation with the Father through the shed blood of Jesus Christ. Which means we were at one time enemies, but we aren't enemies anymore. And the reason we aren't enemies and the reason that we have access to the Father and to His grace and to His mercy is because we've been covered by the blood of the Lamb. We're getting ready to bear witness to that fact. Third, we're bearing witness to the reality that we've not only been united to Christ, but since we've been united to Him, we've been united to one another. There is a real um, fellowship that we have that's not just made up. You realize that if I'm in Christ and you're in Christ, then we're in Christ. Do you understand what I mean when I say that? It's not just a made-up fellowship. It's something that Christ or that the Father has done with us through Him. So we're bearing witness to that reality. And then lastly, we are bearing witness to the fact that Christ has placed us in this body that we might exalt Him that we might stir one another up to love and to good works and that we might grow in Him. So brothers and sisters, as we move into the communion service this morning, we would say along with John, behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. Let's pray. Father, we, uh, we come to you this morning and we thank you for your son, Jesus Christ. We thank you that when we read John's proclamation there, that our hearts bear witness with his record, that we have laid hold of your son, that we found cleansing for our sin, that we found hope in our hopelessness, that we found reconciliation. Father, as we come together to observe the Lord's Supper, we, we bear witness of this corporately. And so we thank you for your Son, Jesus Christ, whom you've sent to reconcile us back to you. And we thank you for the saints of God that you've providentially placed here. Lord, we pray that 
as we move into the communion ceremony here, the commu- as we observe communion, that you would be honored and that each heart would celebrate your goodness in bringing us into this place at this time. We pray in Jesus' name, amen.